welcome back to Then Again. I am Marie Bartlett, and I am the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Today, I have with me Jess Brzezinski, a master's candidate at the University of North Georgia to discuss Egyptomania. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, Marie. How are you? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk about this topic today. Fantastic. So could you please define for our listeners, what exactly is Egyptomania? Because some people probably have never even heard that word before. Yeah, so uh, Egyptomania is kind of like a catch-all term for any time that a certain society is like fascinated with Egypt and it will manifest in their material culture, their fashion, all these different types of, you know, facets of the culture of that society. So the study that I did was about America specifically. But Egyptomania has happened throughout history with a lot of different cultures. So today, can you tell us exactly what we're going to kind of be talking about? A little bit of this fascination that America has with Egypt. So when did this fascination with Egypt begin? How long did it last? Can you give us a little bit of an overview of Egyptomania in America? Yeah, sure. So um, the first, like, significant, I guess... Egyptomania happened in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. They were really fascinated with Egypt. But in America, the first there's two real big Egyptomania sort of phases. Uh, the first one starts in the end of the 18th century. So from about 18 or sorry, 1798 to 1801. And it was sort of spurred on by Napoleon's tour of Egypt. When he went to Egypt, he had archaeologists with him. And they were noting all the different wonders of Egypt. And after his tour, there was a book written called The Description of Egypt. It was written in French. It has a different title. <laughs> but um, this book had a lot of paintings of like pyramids and things that they saw when they were in Egypt on Napoleon's tour. And the book became really popular and was translated into English. And then that sort of spurred this Egyptomania in America. And then the second one was around 1920. It became really popular again after the discovery of King Tut's tomb in 1922. And that's the one that we usually get talked about the most. But um, Egyptomania has existed throughout the history of America. Uh, and there's just little spurts where it gets more active, I guess. So... How did this fascination with Egypt show up in the material culture of the United States during those two large events? So uh, really the beginning of the 1800s and then also at the beginning of the 1900s. Yeah, so it shows up in a lot of different areas of the material culture in the United States. The first place that we really see it is in architecture, and that's called the Egyptian Revival. So a lot of like our American architecture that you associate with you know, Washington, D.C. is inspired by Egypt. So the Washington Monument is a great example of that. And that's an obelisk, which is a symbol from Egypt, which represents a like petrified ray of the sun. And so that's in a lot of their monuments. And then there was also different areas where it showed up. Travel diaries and newspaper articles are really popular. So people sharing their stories of travel in Egypt were fascinating to, you know, American readers. Um, and then along the same lines, there were travel lecturers who would come back to America 
and travel across America and lecture about their travels. And then travelogues and Hollywood films. So when you see the development of film, you know, technology, we see archaeologists first using it to document what's happening, what they're discovering, and then also travelers documenting their travels. And then as that sort of becomes more popular, we see it turn from a documentary tool to more of an art form. So like silent films become really popular about Egypt. And then fashion and jewelry really embraced a lot of the symbols that we see in ancient Egypt. So like hieroglyphics and scarabs became really popular in like clothing and jewelry. And then of course, cosmetics and beauty products used a lot of imagery from ancient Egypt to market their products and also were inspired by ancient Egyptian makeup because they used eyeliner and mascara and things that weren't necessarily popular, but we really see come around in the 1920s, especially that mascara. So those are just a couple of areas of material culture we see Egypt, you know, really present. That's a lot. That's a lot of areas. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot. It's, it's really, it seems like it's all around and perhaps mm-hmm. even in ways that we don't consciously recognize, but yeah. it's there. Um, the Washington Monument, that's, you know, everyone thinks of that as like a very much an American symbol, but it, mm-hmm. Egyptian. Yeah. A lot uh, of other buildings are like Greek and Roman inspired. So it was really interesting to have all of those kind of, you know, um, ancient, I guess, architectural forms to make up our nation's capital. <laughs> yeah, there was a really interesting article that I read um, in preparation for writing this paper that we were, I was inspired by to talk to you about. And this, or I can't remember if it was an article or a book. It might have been a book. But it was about like how American architecture was inspired by Egyptian architecture and how they were trying to connect American democracy with like these ancient democracies of like Greece and Rome and Egypt. So like trying to validate and sort of justify American independence through the use of this architecture. I thought that was really interesting. And like we just don't think about how ingrained it is in American culture. For sure. So could you give our listeners some more historical context to the travel logs written about Egypt for Western consumption at this time, which you mentioned that these travel logs that people would write about their adventures and travels um, in the material culture segment that we just talked Mm -hmm. about. Uh, But could you give us a little bit more historical context for those? Yeah, sure. So um, during the mid-19th century, travel books became really popular, and it was people documenting their travels throughout. A lot of them were about, you know, the Holy Land, so Israel, and then Egypt was also included in those books. But there were ones written specifically about Egypt. And they were really popular because you didn't have to travel to Egypt to get this experience. You know, you could just open your book and read about all these wonders that you have heard about all your life. And a lot, they were really popular with Christian Americans because, you know, ancient Egypt is mentioned in the Bible, especially in the story of Moses. And so they became sort of like this form of escapism for middle-class Americans to read these books that they couldn't necessarily travel to Egypt, but, you know, they could read the stories. And even Americans like Mark Twain 
traveled to Egypt and wrote about Egypt. So he wrote a book in 1869 called The Innocents Abroad. And it was just filled with his stories of adventures in Europe and the Holy Land. And they also included illustrations of his travels. So you could see the images that you couldn't necessarily travel and go to see in these books. So they became really popular around the uh, the mid-19th century. Very interesting. So would you say that these travelogues were an accurate representation of Egypt, or was this very much like an idealized fantasy escapism version? (laughs) Yeah, I think it, you know, it is sort of documentary in a way, but you have to think of the perspective it comes from. And it is from the point of view of a lot of white American men going and seeing Egypt, you know, from their perspective. And there were a lot of instances when I was reading Mark Twain's book where you could see sort of his inherent racism and in his portrayals of the natives in Egypt. So it's definitely, I, I think that's one of the most important things to think about when you're studying Egyptomania is that though it is a fascination with Egypt, it comes from the perspective of an American. So a lot of times things are misinterpreted or they're seen from a privileged view. So it's important to not only study how Egypt inspired it, but how it was transformed by the people who were consuming, you know, Egyptian culture and then recreating it. It's like a form of cultural appropriation in a way, because it's not authentic to the original. It's through the lens of someone else, you know? Yes. So could you also tell us a little bit about the invention of silent films? So in the early 1800s, late 1700s, we had travelogues. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of what people were able to learn about Egypt in that way or to to kind of get their fascination with Egypt that way. Um, And then when we go into the early 1900s, we have the invention of film and silent films, particularly and I was kind of struck when I was was reading your paper about how many Egyptian-themed asylum movies there were. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize that was such a popular genre, even way back then, because, you know, today we have movies like The Mummy and, yeah. you know, we, we still have like these, I guess, really Egyptomania films. Mm-hmm. But could you kind of tell us about the origin of these films that are centered around this interesting version of Egypt that I, because of of course, like there are actual mummies, but they don't, you know, come to life and chase people. So how did that all start? Yeah. So, you know, throughout this sort of period of Egyptomania from Napoleon to the 1920s, you can see a development of film technology. So first we have documentation through paintings and then We have documentation through illustrations like we see in these travelogues. And once, you know, motion pictures come along, archaeologists and travelers would use film to document their travels, just like we had in the travelogues. But after that process, we also see Egyptian culture and sort of stereotypes being represented in, you know, silent films. And they were really popular because... Egypt is seen as something sort of foreign, even though it's familiar because we have familiar stories like those from the Bible. 
But we also see Egypt as this sort of fount of ancient wisdom. And, um, you know, a lot of their themes in these silent films were sort of exoticized. So the glitz and the seduction and, you know, these stories really translated well to silent film because silent film is so dramatic. So a lot of these stereotypes and stories can be easily translated to silent film and they became really popular with viewers. Um, in 1917, there was a silent film starring Theta Bera about Cleopatra, and that one was really popular, and it sort of took on a life of its own where Theta Bera literally says that she's a reincarnated version of Cleopatra at one point. But also it reveals the westernized lens that it's going through because a lot of the fashion and, you know, the sets, they look like Edwardian, <laughs> you know, they look like Edwardian America with this Cleopatra stuck into it. So it was really interesting the ways that Cleopatra Egypt was translated into silent films. And then also there was a lot of films about these curses that come from, you know, ancient Egypt, because, you know, there was a, how would I say? Around the discovery of King Tetsum, there were a lot of rumors about a curse that had killed, you know, Lord Carnarvon. And so a lot of people said that they were cursed because they opened the tomb. And then these curses sort of, you know, they were translated to films. So there was a lot of films about ancient Egyptian curses or spells that would come alive and, you know, punish these archaeologists. And <laughs> so that was another genre of silent films that had to do with Egypt. So that leads very nicely into my next question, which was, or which is, why do you think Cleopatra became such a popular figure with so many movies made about her specifically throughout the years? Yeah, so I think there is this inherent drama to her story. Obviously, she was raised in position of power. She helped reign along with three different pharaohs. So her story is well known and it's been passed along through many different historians and writers throughout history. And I think the combination of, you know, romance, politics, drama, scandal just translated well to film. And it could be portrayed in so many different ways to appeal to all kinds of audiences. Because Cleopatra is a famous woman, she automatically appeals to women who are fascinated with her story and inspired by, you know, her courage and her bravery. And then her role as a seductress and like a, a famous beauty is also appealing to men as well. So there's a lot of things about Cleopatra that make her sort of an ideal topic of a film. So then Cleopatra not only becomes a movie fascination, but also becomes an advertising fascination. Of course, like with today, we have a lot of advertisements that are based off films that use characters from films to sell different products. And Cleopatra was no different, even though she's also a historical figure as well. So Cleopatra was also used in many advertisements in the early 1900s by companies to sell a variety of products, but most generally beauty products to American women. Why is this? I know you talk a little bit about her famous, I guess, her her role as a great beauty. Mm -hmm. So 
was this very much, you know, kind of coinciding with that. Uh, and also, this is also an interesting time for women as they are actually being encouraged to wear makeup for the first time in a almost century. So can you tell us a little bit uh, about American women makeup and Cleopatra? Yeah, so the interesting thing about Cleopatra when I was studying her is there are so many different ways that she has been sort of co-opted and used to sell products. Um, And her image is representative of so many things. Uh, Just as I was saying about films about her, a lot of the imagery about Cleopatra is about her beauty, but it's also about her strength. And, you know, in the 1920s, especially women are coming into their own. They now have the right to vote and they're feeling empowered by, you know, their this new right to vote. And so Cleopatra is sort of representative of a strong woman. And so she appeals to that woman, but she also appeals to women who want to be beautiful and want to lure men. So cosmetic brands use that as a way to market their products. Um, one famous one, the one that I saw the most in my studies was Palm Olive. Palm Olive soap uses Cleopatra in many of their advertisements. And not only connecting their soap to a way that Cleopatra maintained her youth and beauty because of her use of the palm and olive oils, which are what's in the soap, but they also represent Cleopatra as sort of this ideal of beauty. And they use this ideal to sell their products. And then it's really interesting that Cleopatra, in a way, becomes a representative of this ideal of white beauty, even though her racial background is sort of ambiguous because her father was Greek and her mother is never named. So we don't really know what her racial background is on that side. So a lot of historians have argued in the past that she was fully Greek and therefore ideal white beauty. And so this was used also by Palmolive in a couple of their ads to sort of represent their product as, you know, something that could be used to promote white supremacy almost in a way, you know, in a very covert way. But if you look at the imagery, there's a lot of it that exoticizes you know, the natives of Egypt and represents Cleopatra as sort of a superior and in this ideal of white beauty, white beauty. So that's one way. There's so many ways that she is represented in marketing, but that's probably the most famous one. And I just think that her racial ambiguity also allows marketers to utilize her in any way that they would like and she's recognizable automatically so you know their consumers are going to identify with Cleopatra and they can sort of project their own ideals onto this character of Cleopatra. Do you think that Americans are still fascinated with Egypt to this day that Egyptomania is still continuing on? Yeah absolutely you know, and you're speaking about The Mummy before, that's one of my favorite movies. (laughs) But yeah, I think that it manifests in maybe not an outright way like we would think about in these two periods. But we do see a lot. I mean, as someone who's sort of fascinated with Egypt myself, I see a lot of programs about 
you know, King Tut on TV. And there's now National Geographic is doing this immersive experience where you can go and they're traveling around and you can go basically inside a 3D replica of King Tut's tomb. So these things are, are still alive in our culture. And they're probably become part of our culture so much that we don't really necessarily notice it anymore. But when you know the culture of ancient Egypt and when you know the symbols, you can more easily pick them out. So I noticed it. Maybe other people wouldn't notice it quite as easily. But I definitely think there are a lot of things about American culture that are so much influenced by Egypt. So what do you think are a couple of those symbols that you would have people be on the lookout for to see if this is something that is very much inspired by the culture of ancient Egypt? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> I think the, the, you know, the easiest one to identify was probably the architecture. There's a lot of architectural influence from Egypt. I mean, even with things like which hotel is it? There's a hotel that's like a pyramid oh, in it, Las Vegas. Yes. So like things like that, they're still being, you know, built around the country. And there's all these, you know, recreations of Egyptian things that I think are interesting. So yeah, architecture definitely would be one. I think in our film, you know, it's been a strong tool of, you know, disseminating ancient Egypt since the very beginning and I think we still see you know films that are based on Egyptian stories we see biblical narratives that are being brought to life over and over again and you know an enduring sort of medium that, that doesn't really go away and it's very captivating and so it's keeping Egypt alive but also the more times it's recreated it's sort of being diluted more and more by American culture. So it's this sort of catch 22 where it's still, you know, it's still alive in our culture, but we're sort of making it our own. And I think that's why it's kind of hard to see unless you have that trained eye where you see like, Oh, this reminds me of Egypt, you know, and we can see the historical implications of it. They're just being diluted a little bit because they're being incorporated into our own culture. All right. Well, I don't have any more questions, but do you have any questions that you wish I would have asked or topics that we didn't get to cover that was like, oh, this is a really cool fact that I wanted to share, but haven't gotten a chance to yet? Yeah, I think a lot of it is the mysticism of Egypt that it's seen as sort of this. Oh, I didn't mention when we were talking about the origins of Egypt, Romania and America. During that first Egyptomania, uh, one of the more important discoveries that sort of spurs it on, along with that book that we talked about, is the discovery of Rosetta Stone in 1799. So that was really important because this discovery, you know, allowed us to translate ancient Egypt hieroglyphs or we couldn't before, we couldn't translate it into English, you know. So when they found the Rosetta Stone, uh, it had hieroglyphs and then it had Greek and then it had one other language i can't remember but through the discovery of the stone they were able to translate all these ancient you know writings and sort of more easily understand the hieroglyphs they found in tombs so that was also another reason that 
Egyptomania became really popular at the beginning of the 1800s. Uh, I don't want to leave that out. Absolutely, <laughs> because with the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, you suddenly, it's like the, the key that unlocks mm-hmm. all of this knowledge and culture that had been up until that point lost and or forgotten. Right. So there's this renaissance really of Egypt where people are rediscovering what it was like and more right. about it. And I think what's really important about the Rosetta Stone is that before we had the Rosetta Stone, we were seeing things through the eyes of observers, people who had written in Greek and Roman about Egypt, but we weren't getting the story from the Egyptians themselves. And so through this discovery, we were able to you know, translate their own writings so that we could get their side of the story. And I think that's really important in uh, Egyptomania is that we now have these this other ancient wisdom that it's sort of like unlocking exactly what you said, unlocking this key of being able to understand the past in a new way. Yeah. So to close, why do you think Americans are fascinated with Egypt, that they're still so fascinated with Egypt, how they became fascinated with Egypt? Of course, we talked about like the the historical events which led to it. But why do you think it caught on and took hold and is still holding on? I think part of it is just the foreignness of it. And it's so opposite of our American culture in a lot of ways. Even the religion is very different. And so it's, we are always curious to know more about things that are so different from us. I I think I am for sure. So I think that curiosity sort of fuels renewed interest in Egypt over and over again, because there's always things to discover and there's always, you know, more things hidden under the sand to find. Uh, Like they just had this giant discovery in Egypt. I think it was Saqqara of a bunch of mummies that had never been uncovered. And so these discoveries are still happening today. And also I think it sort of reflects uh, American fascination with preserving history because Egypt was unknown to us for a long time. And with the Rosetta Stone, we are now able to understand Egypt better. And we have this desire to not only understand this foreign thing, but sort of preserve it. And a lot of, you know, American and British archaeologists have been doing that work. And now we're seeing more Egyptian archaeologists who are being able to do that as well. So there's so many things about ancient Egypt that appeal to us. And I think the more that we discover, the more we'll be interested in it. It's just like a circle. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Egyptomania. I hope our listeners really enjoyed getting to learn and perhaps were kind of, you know, inspired to think about the things in their own life. And if they were inspired by the culture of ancient Egypt, how they've been influenced with Egyptomania, they probably didn't even realize it since it's so ingrained in our culture. But thank you so much for giving us some background, insight, and context to that today. Yes, thank you for having me. It was fun talking to you. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. 
Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.